0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
2: Hi. And welcome to a taste of the past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And as we record this, we're entering into March, which, of course, is Women's History Month. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about women's history in terms of something uh, out of the ordinary, and that is women's relationship with alcohol and gin, in particular. And I couldn't think of a better person to talk about it than my uh, one uh, colleague who's been on the show before, Dr. Nicola Nice. And Dr. Nice is, um, so I guess you would say she is. Well, I wouldn't guess. You would say you would say she is a, um, a brand strategist and consultant turned uh, spirits distiller and owner of her own company, Pomp and Pomp and Whimsy, in an effort to write women back into the cocktail history and into basically into the history of distilling altogether. Uh, She actually, well, we'll find out from her, noticed uh, a a real lack in women in that industry. And uh, she spent her, she was an Oxford educated, she is an Oxford educated sociologist and brand strategist, as I said, and made her career advising Fortune 500 companies on international branding and consumer rights. So she turned those insights into that and towards her own business and developed this company and first coming out with a botanical gin liqueur and she has some new announcements to make on that. Um, It really took her into the world of gin. So she, it is her goal to revolutionize the spirits industry for female consumers and uh, we will find out a lot more about that right now. Welcome, Nicola. Nice to speak with you again, Linda. So what in particular, you you said that you noticed, um, well, you dealt with a lot. Let's put it this way. You dealt with a lot of people in the liquor industry. In fact, uh, Forbes wrote about you and, and mentioned you in one of their articles, Women Running the Liquor World. Well, you must have been one of the few. <laughs> uh, so, tell me a little bit about what you know. What uh, spawned your interest in in doing this and entering your and entering into the spirit's world yourself?
3: Absolutely. Um, so, I've always had a fascination with with people and behavior and the way that we interact with each other and and objects and assign values to those objects. And that's what naturally led me into the world of branding, and specifically consumer behavior and consumer insights. And I've always had an interest as well in the spirit space. I am originally from the UK, and I moved to the US in 2007, uh, where I set up residence in New York City and very quickly discovered the incredible hospitality and cocktail scene of New York City and over the next 13-14 years began to develop both a parallel professional and personal interest in the world of spirits on from a professional point of view in the world of spirits branding and obviously from a personal and academic point of view the history of the cocktail and um, specifically women's role in it Right. And I always felt as I was working with the big spirits producers that something was being left out of the conversation when it came to the female consumer. So, as you reference, the industry has historically been a fairly male dominated industry. Although I'm very happy to say that that is changing and it's changing quite quickly, actually. You mentioned that Forbes series on women running the liquor world. And I think they got up to six, seven, maybe more installments on that. (laughs) Um, So it was great to see that they kept uncovering more and more women who were making change there. Uh, But for me, going back to this question of why are women so ignored and misrepresented when it comes to the brand and marketing landscape, I felt that one of the big factors at that time was simply that there weren't enough women behind the scenes. And so that's why, at some point, <laughs> I felt like, okay, if I'm going to really be at the helm of changing this, I need to dive in um, feet first into actually producing and not just advising.
2: Yes. well, of course, you it's nice that you saw an open niche in the market, too that that how how good could that be? I mean, you know that was perfect. Right. The perfect storm, as they say. Yes. Well, let's let's look back a little bit about there's more than just that women were being ignored in the spirits producing end of it. Mm-hmm. But there was a whole lot more going on. There's a whole, um, as you pointed out, uh, a lot of propaganda generated against women and drinking, specifically drinking gin. So mm-hmm. can we back up and, and sort of talk a little bit about that because certainly people have maybe heard the reference to gin as mother's ruin or Mm -hmm. have gone to a a bar. I know we have one bar in my neighborhood called mother's ruin and I know there Mm -hmm. are several others. I'm sure across the country, there Mm -hmm. are others as well. Uh, Tell us what brought this all about.
3: Yes. Um, so as you say, I, I mean, I grew up with that same, um, that that same sort of colloquial um, slang for gin being called mother's ruin, and as I was developing a what was a gin product, I wanted to really understand. Okay, what's what's the history of women with gin, and why on earth do we call it mother's ruin, <laughs> yeah. um, and where did that come from, and how has that impacted? our relationship um, with gin and specifically women's relationship with gin. And then by extension, how we perceive women as drinkers of gin. So it was really sort of digging back into the history of gin. Um, Mother's ruin itself is a phrase that became a popular uh, slang term for gin around the the, the late eighteen hundreds, so the turn of the the twentieth century, um, is when we sort of start to see it really emerging in a lot of popular culture. But the phrase itself comes from um, a derivation from a much earlier phrase um, from the gin craze of the early seventeen hundreds, back when the spirit was known as mother gin. Um, so I think we can we can talk a little bit about that history of of women and gin and specifically date it back to the gin craze and see how it has evolved and, as you said, continue to impact the cultural narrative of women and gin through the propaganda
2: um, that has been shared. You mentioned mother gin, but even prior to that, it was referred to uh, with mother in the title, and that's mother's milk when it was developed medicinally, correct?
3: Right. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, I think it's interesting if we think about the, the semiotics of mother, mm, you're right. <laughs> right? Um, so I think, you know, back then that there's lots of different ways that you can think about th- the word mother and what that means. And I think what we're kind of seeing in its sort of common usage, um, during the late 1600s and early 1700s, was this sense of dependency. Um, you know, when we talk about um mother's apron strings, for example, it's this idea that we are we're somehow tied to the mother and that the that the mother is has ultimate sort of power over us as it's, you know, the, the place where we're birthed. Everything originates with a mother. Um, but then there's also this sort of sense of continuing to be attached to the mother. And of course what we what we know about the gin craze um, was much like any other epidemic or drug epidemic that has happened um over the centuries, is this sort of widespread dependency on something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that probably has a lot to do with it. But I think it probably also has a lot to do with how gin started to become popularized at that time. So gin had obviously um, been around in in England for at least a century before the gin craze um, took off, but it was really when William of Orange and uh, Queen Mary II took the throne, um, and William obviously being from the Netherlands, that they really started to popularize Jinn at that time with high society. Mm. And of course, um, you know, there were many people who are better historians than I am, who have written extensively on the different political um, happenings uh, during the course of the late 1600s through to um, the mid 1700s around the gin craze. But Essentially, William was responsible for deregulating gin, which then, um, you know, made it very cheap to produce, and and is essentially what caused it to take off um, with great verve and popularity. But even as that was happening, um, the fact that they were drinking it in the royal court, um, and then when um, w- when he passed and Mary's sister, Queen Anne, came to the throne, she was a notorious lush, shall we say, <laughs> um, and was a big fan. Her nickname was Dram Shop," apparently, uh, but was a big fan of the spirit, as were her ministers. And so you see gin becoming socially popular, um, as well as very cheap to produce. And as you said, a slightly different perfect storm ensued. Um, but that led to not just Mother Gin being the... Popular phrase for gin, but also um, Madame Geneva and Queen Gin. <laughs> so this uh, this this association of, I'm sure specifically Queen Anne and her love of gin, um, then started to cement its association with women.
2: Well, and you know a lot of people are under the impression that gin was invented and started in England. Um, because of its long history, as you just explained. But in fact, um, the king was from the Netherlands. And is mm-hmm. is, is uh, do you know anything about that, the truth and the fact that it really began by a Dutch pharmacist or or physician or something?
3: Well, I, I read that, that juniper-infused distilled spirits were actually cr- first created in Italy by Benedictine monks. <laughs>
2: well, you know, and that makes perfect sense, obviously. Yeah. yeah.
3: Um, and, and, and people consumed, um, it for its medicinal properties. And it's always had an association with being supposedly beneficial for, for gastrointestinal issues, um, which have always were very commonplace, um, with the kinds of diets that people had at the time. Um, but specifically, so the, the Dutch were obviously making Geneva, um, which was a, um, a, a malt based, um, Juniper laced spirit, and certainly that had that was already, as I said, in England. That already come into England when that evolved into gin was essentially um, at this time when um, the production of gin was deregulated, and this came about essentially as. A, uh, a xenophobic act against the french <laughs> oh. so um you know england was fighting an ongoing um war with the french and the english people enjoyed drinking french brandy and so in a in a double act of vengeance on the french they raised import duties on french brandy and at the same time Deregulated um, the the production, the home production of grain based um, g- gin spirits, uh, white spirits in the in England,
2: or bathtub um, that, or bathtub gin, as we <laughs> as we came right, to so know it. Right. So basically,
3: they they broke they broke apart the gin distillers guild, making it possible for anyone essentially mm-hmm. to to produce gin. Um, And so once gin was started to be produced in the home, (laughs) of course, that's when um, you can imagine um, women became very involved in that um, cottage industry.
2: Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned cottage industry and women brewing. And um, we Mm. talked about this when you were on last time talking about um, women, writing women back into the cocktail history because women were so um, important in in actually bringing about the popularity of the cocktail and serving the cocktails. And um, even prior to that, way back when we're talking about ancient times, I mean, women were the brewers, they were cooking in the home. Well, well having something to drink and brewing was also part of the culinary act. So women were in fact, you know, brewers way back then. So, you know, it's not an unusual thing. No, it was
3: uh, it was considered women's work right um, you know it was domestic work and it, it wasn't until it was commercialized and I think specifically you know obviously you know that the the gin the successive gin acts um of the early 1700s led to a lot of change um but one of those changes was um you know bring basically bringing back the the distillers guild essentially and so not allowing the Uh, making it illegal to produce at home and then obviously putting a lot of uh, taxes on the retail Mm. of gin and then you know it's very expensive licenses for the making and retailing of gin Um, and then yes essentially making it um, illegal to to make gin at home Mm. so once you commercialized it and then of course you have a hundred or so years later, the evolution of the Industrial Revolution and, and then the Victorians taking hold of it. Um, now we have real separation of the public and private worlds. And I think probably at that point, that's when um, even though, as we discussed on our last conversation, women were still producing um Beer and they were producing liqueurs and brandies and cordials and so on in the home. Um, y- you started to see the emergence of of men really controlling this.
2: Mm. Well, there is um, there is a a very public uh, piece of propaganda, which is uh, a piece of art that you feel is you know it's sort of um, perpetuated this this. Um, Image of of women and alcohol and uh, and and was effective in what's been, as I said, perpetuated in in their attitudes today. Uh, can you talk about that?
3: Yes, uh, absolutely. So, um, you know, as we've been discussing this sort of idea of 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 mother's ruin being a, a synonym for gin and that coming from from mother gin and, and mother's milk, as you, as you said. Um, the 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 British government as they attempted to control what they saw was this i mean frankly it was it was a um it it, it was something that poor people and of course women and um were consuming And it was something that they felt was causing the destruction of society. So um, as London was growing as a city, of course, um, as it became more and more urbanized, what you saw with that was the emergence of a lot more crime, a lot more vice. And um, this feeling that these these crimes were always leading back to a story that started in a gin shop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And of course, wherever you find crime, and you find vice, you find prostitution. Um, and so this association of, of, of women and um, the degradation of society, which is ex- the exact same narrative um, that was really um, driving a lot in the temperance movement as well, and this sort of desire to protect women from the harmful effects of these things, um, led to a lot of propaganda, um, specifically around women. And this really became concentrated around the time of the first major Jinn act, um, which was in 1736. And two years before that was enacted, there was a very famous case of a woman by the name of Judith Defoe, um who... Had she was a very, she was a poor woman, a single mother of a two-year-old daughter um, called Mary, who on an occasion in January 1734 apparently um, sold Mary's clothes and used the money to buy gin and left Mary abandoned in a ditch while she went out with her friend to. Go drink more and because Mary was crying um, they were concerned about someone finding her and so they tied a handkerchief around her neck and um, to quieten her down and essentially strangled her and murdered her and um, Judith was tried in the Old Bailey for this crime and she she was convicted and she was hung and this was really taken as okay this is the absolute depravity you know how how much lower can you go right than a mother abandoning her child murdering her child all in the pursuit of feeding her gin habit and so this narrative started to form a lot of the propaganda um i think i think prior to 1736 the concern was really just um, was more sort of widespread drunkenness but post 1736 and before the the other big gin act of 1751 the the narrative started to turn towards the prob the, the issues of crime and specifically the issues with women so after the 1736 act where it essentially um became became illegal to make Um, gin at home, or put it another way, it became very expensive to get a license (laughs) to make and retail um, gin. At the same time, there were incentives, rewards for people who informed on people who were um, producing gin. Um, Mm. And of course, what happens as during any prohibition is it goes underground and people start selling it illegally anyway. And of course, gin consumption went up (laughs) after that first gin act. (laughs) um but at the time according to the historian Patrick Dillon 3 out of 4 of the people who were brought before the magistrates for illegally selling gin were women hmm. um so what we what, what, of course what we don't know about this is whether that means women were selling gin more than men or that people it was easier to inform on a woman who was <laughs> right, right? We, we we don't know um that um, level of detail Um, but essentially this helped to fuel this narrative of gin being a woman's issue whereas in reality during those years there's no evidence to suggest that women were any more inebriated than men by gin or any more obsessed and you know we can bring that we can bring that argument to the present and talk about maybe in a minute about how women still, people still continue to focus on the problems of women drinking (laughs) um, versus men. Um, But essentially, um, as the propaganda built up ahead of steam, this led to the, um, the, the second big act of the period. I mean, there were many acts in between, but of 1751, and the propaganda that was produced around that including this engraving by the artist William Hogarth called Gin Lane and this is a very very famous picture in fact if you if you google if you do a google image search of Mother's ruin, or mother Jinn or the Jinn craze. This is the image that yeah. will come up, and it's one of those
2: images that once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> That's correct. Um, I mean, I ta- I attached it to the show page, and yeah. I had second. I said, "Ooh, I wonder if this is a little too a little too crude and violent to put on <laughs> on my show page." But I'm, it is a piece of history as well as it a piece a- of art.
3: Right. So, what it shows, what it depicts, is um, you know the the society in absolute depths of gin-addled depravity. But the central figure is a woman. I mean, she's barely recognisable as a woman. But she is a woman sat on the steps of St Giles in in a disgraced state. Her clothes are torn apart. Um, She's covered in venereal sores. And uh, She is abandoning, she appears to be abandoning her baby over the side of the bridge. And it's it's widely assumed that this is meant to be a depiction mm. of Judith De as the poster mm-hmm. child. Mm. Um, but what it's showing is the breakdown of society and the woman and specifically the mother at the heart of that. Um, and it's important to remember that Gin Lane was produced it, with a companion piece, um, which was Beer Street. Um, and Beer Street is meant to show what society looks like when people are drinking beer instead of gin. And it's important to remember um, that beer was a product that was consumed in alehouses, um, that were places where women were not allowed. <laughs> so it was this argument for this return to a more ordered society, where women were in their place um, and, um, you know, everything was,
2: was rosy. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to talk uh, more on this, on the impact that, that these images and, and uh, all of this has had on the perception of women in gin. But mm-hmm. we have to take a quick break. So stay with us and we'll be right back.
0: Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind the Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Nicola Nice um, about gin and, actually, um, gin and alcohol and the perception of of alcohol consumption by women from 300 years ago and how it really hasn't really changed a whole lot and why it has continued. There are some pretty crude names attached to some of the the so-called women, famous women who um or the I mean, not famous women women uh women's names attached to drunkenness that was also used in part of the propaganda um I think you pointed some of those out in some of in your um in your materials mm-hmm. uh Sarah pisspot, <laughs> Dorothy addlebrains, or Sarah Suckwell I mean, oh, this is I mean I can't believe this is three hundred years ago, and they're having these <laughs> Right. These really libelous names being attached to to uh, to women. Uh, how in the world did this did this continue? As you say that you know the narrative on women and alcohol, uh, this propaganda really was ingrained in in society.
3: Right, um, you know, like as as we were saying before the break, um, you know, there's there's not really any evidence to suggest that anywhere that women were. Drinking gin in in higher numbers than men, and yet women were the ones who were kind of demonised for it as part of the propaganda um, on the part of the patriarchal government to 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 bring this back under control. And you know that was three hundred years ago, and as you say, not much has really changed as we continue even today to talk about women's relationship with alcohol Mm -hmm. obviously when we talk about alcohol dependence and alcoholism um it is a very sensitive subject and it's you know it's something that is a problem regardless of who has the issue and it's a problem regardless of gender and uh, for many reasons um including the impact that it has on the people who are around the person who is affected but it's interesting even in the media today to see how whenever statistics around, um, you know, drinking rates and rates of alcoholism are quoted, the focus is always on uh, the, the impact on women, even though in reality um there hasn't been any time in history where women have consumed more or been more affected by any epidemic, um, um, including this one. However, you continue to see those narratives um, play out that somehow it's worse when it affects women. And again, it comes back to, I think, always the fact that women are mothers, um, and um, I think even when you look at the access to treatment for alcoholism, for, for the longest time, it was really only communicated to women in regards to pregnancy, for example, so we still have warnings, right, about mm. um, drinking when you're pregnant. Um, as if that is the only <laughs> the <laughs> only time at which this is a problem right for women Um but the truth is even today men consume three times more alcohol than women do alcoholism is um uh, the rate of alcoholism uh, among men is is twice as high as it is among women and it's, it's like I said, there's no amount of alcoholism that is okay. Um, but to talk about this as if it is a problem um, for women when it's, it's a universal problem um, is just something that when you kind of, when you look at the way the media talks about the gendered relationship with alcohol just continues, even
2: in a subtle way, to play out right. even today. Well, and it's interesting because the... Um the famous, you know, temperance movement was largely um, run by women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's quite the opposite, you know, because women were the ones leading the fight to, you know, to limit drinking or or make it, you know, illegal. Interesting. Um. So what made you? What, well, well, what? Where? When did we see? When did we see things start to? Um, let's say, calm down a bit? Well,
3: uh, you mean in terms of gin consumption? Yes, or, yes. Um, <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, you know, sit around, sit around a beach scene in a movie or whatever around someone, yeah. the pool, and it's always, you know, the backyard, it's always, you know, summertime gin and tonic time. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. you know, and, and that's, uh, that, that became very popular.
3: Yeah, so I mean, gin has been through um, several phases of popularity, um, right? So you know, if we talk about the evolution of mother's gin, as I like to say, from Queen Gin to Mother's Ruin and back again, back up again. Um, you know, the, I think actually the the Queen was even was it just last year was told she had to she had to give up her nightly mar- gin martini, <laughs> and there was there was a lot of outrage. You know, not the martini. <laughs> Um, But yes, so uh, so after, um, you know, fast forward and, um, you know, to the the turn of the the 19th century, the Regency era going on into the Victorian era, Um, gin regained popularity. But what had changed at this time um, was a a huge leap forward in production methods, um, meaning that the gin that was being produced was a vastly better quality um, than the gin of 100 years prior.
2: Oh, I would imagine. Um,
3: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> and, uh, and under the Victorians, gin started to regain popularity again, um, and it was less associated with the the poor and the destitute and, and again started to take, let's say, a classier turn um, in terms of who was consuming it. And also, it was, it was a lot lower proof, <laughs> um, in, initially by law, but then also by tastes. So during the gin craze, um, I mean, people were drink the gin that people were consuming was like 160 proof. <laughs> <Whew>. <laughs> um, and so, you know, a hundred years later, the, the proof was maybe half that and even, even lower. And as we've sort of talked about before, the tastes changed as well in terms of the profile of gin. Mm-hmm. And, um, the Victorians in particular enjoyed sweetening their gin and making these cordial styles. And this was, this is going back to the discussion that, that you and I had on, um, the last time we spoke was, women continuing to, in the home, use spirit bases to create cordials and and liqueurs and, and and other things. And so gin, obviously, being very widely available, was often the base for these cordial style drinks that were served um, particularly by women to other women. So women would, after dinner, when men were having their brandies would retire to the the ladies parlor and drink cordials and drink gin cordials and um, these are a sweetened um sweetened gins and often had other flavors added to them too so gin started to come back into the the social rituals of women at that time and then of course by the time gin started to be exported in greater volumes across the Atlantic, it it found itself at the heart of the emerging cocktail boom. Hmm. And by the time prohibition came around and the cocktail party emerged, gin was at the center of probably two out of three of the cocktails that um, women were making as hostesses in the home. So... It it certainly continued to be a spirit that was enjoyed by women. And a lot of these cocktail recipes, especially the ones that emerged during Prohibition, emerged directly as cocktails that women were enjoying. Uh, Something like the bee's knees is a a classic example of that.
2: Right, right. Uh, Okay, well, this cues me into your company's new product that's about to launch. And you have decided, you made a gin liqueur, but now you've decided to produce or you have produced a gin. Um, that's right. I, I want to know about that. But also what we have started to see um, more commonly are um, gins with a different uh, flavor forward, mm-hmm. whether it be more of, um, you know, a cucumber Flavored, not flavored, but the the taste that comes across more of you know the the juniper berry is is so prevalent. But then other times you get more of this you know these different botanicals coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about the gin that you're coming out with.
3: Yes, uh, so Pomp and Whimsy is launching our dry gin in time for Mother's Day actually um, this spring. And as we like to call it, it is the mother of all gins. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: keeping, keeping um, up
2: with the theme here. <laughs> keeping
3: up with the theme. Um, so as we, as we sort of talked about before, pomp and whimsy gin cure is a cordial style gin. And, and we created that as a tribute to these styles of gin that were popular 150 years ago. Um, and. You know, we wanted to update that style. We wanted to bring it back, but of course, from a brand point of view, make our mission to be write, rewriting this story, rewriting the story of women and gin, rewriting the story of women and the cocktail. And it seemed like a natural next step to to make the mother, to to make the the base gin as well. Uh, we started to get increasingly um, increasing number of requests for the base gin um to try the gin um that that goes into making pomp and whimsy gin the cure and we decided to go one step beyond that and and actually perfect that gin to stand alone as its own spirit so Mm. i'm excited to, to to bring that out for people to try
2: and what what is it called
3: just gin? It's called pomp and whimsy gin. Pom, <laughs> pomp,
2: pomp and whimsy um, gin. Pomp and simple. whimsy
3: organic gin. Um, oh well, so that's it's important. A, yeah. It's a certified organic gin. Um, the liqueur is also, um, as of this year, um, certified organic too. Uh, so, we we continue to really promote this idea of of creating clean spirits, um, spirits that use whole, natural, real ingredients, um, and oh. um, I think organic is a big part of that. Um, It's obviously a nod to a broader, sustainable
2: um, vision of of how we make things today. Interesting. Well, I look forward to that coming on the market. And uh, what about flavor? Can you say, can you say anything about, just has the gin flavor? Yes.
3: Um, So much like the liqueur, um it's it's funny because when people taste the liqueur and in, and when we've had people taste the dry gin as well the the juniper element is there but what we've tried to do is highlight juniper in its softer form a juniper can actually be quite citrusy yes. and doesn't always need to be so bitter and piney so that's what we're really trying to highlight and showcase Um, The pomp and whimsy gin is quite floral, as you might imagine. Um, It's not floral in terms of like a big bouquet of sweet flowers um, or perfumey. I would describe it more as kind of spring or wild flowers. It has some herbal elements um, and there's a strong note of grapefruit in there too. Um, It's very bright. It's very spring-like. It's very fresh. It does really well in any clean-spirited cocktails like a martini. And it's also extremely complementary, of course, to the liqueur. So um, creating a cocktail with a splash of the liqueur to amp up the gin notes to your own taste um, is what we're sort of encouraging our consumers to do.
2: Well, I'm going to have to get an image of some of those, those advertisements from I'm thinking particularly the 50s, you know, where we'd see um, – parties and and many mm-hmm. times, you know groups of women, and they you could tell they were always drinking a gin and tonic. I've got to erase Hogarth's picture out of my mind <laughs> right exactly. so you yes. got your work cut out for you there. <laughs> we have
3: to retell that story, and actually that you know that's a big part of what we'll be doing as a brand um over the you know, not just this year and the years to come is you know we we have long conversations about how. What is an act of restoration? How can we restore the name of Mother Jin? And we think that the best way to do that is just to keep retelling the story but re- reframing it as we do. Right. Um, mm. And as we each tell the story and pass that story on, um, that is an act of restoration in and of itself. And, of course, if we raise a glass in a toast, uh, then even better.
2: Well. Here I'm raising my my pretend glass, and here's a toast to uh, to gin and to yours, and hopefully to you know a wonderful experience with it. And I wish you all kinds of success with that. And um, it's a fascinating history; it truly is.
3: Thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to, to to talk more about it.
2: Well, I look forward in the market, and thank you for sharing all your information. And to my audience, thank you for listening once again. It's been A Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.